So if you will, please turn with me to the book of Jonah. We'll be reading chapter 3 this morning. Jonah chapter 3, starting at the beginning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and, and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, on the first day Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on a sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we come to hear God's word this morning, let us bow and pray together. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning. We wish that you would speak to us clearly through your word. Lord, we are aware of our lack and our need of you. So come and speak to us, we pray. Prepare our hearts, Lord. As we look at your word, Lord, show us the areas in our lives that you would wish to change, that you would wish to touch. Show us those hidden places, Lord, that you would love to penetrate. And I pray that as we listen to your words, you would prepare our hearts, that our lives would be full of holy obedience unto you, who have done so much in saving us in such a great way. We pray you would do this for your glory and your fame, and for the praise of Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue this morning in our series on Jonah chapter 3, and I would like to thank Joshua for reading the passage for us this morning. By way of context, we come really to the second half of the book of Jonah, and it's, uh, you can kind of see that we've come to the second half by the word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time again. You'll recall from earlier in the book that Jonah ran in the opposite direction from the way that God had told him to go. If you actually look on a map, I was surprised that I thought that Nineveh was on the coast, because I always assumed that when Jonah was ejected from the fish that he came up just outside the city and then walked into the city. And then Nineveh is actually hundreds of kilometers away from the coast. It's actually where Mosul is now. I guess you hear about it in the news nowadays. So he was told to go over land. Instead of going northeast, he kind of went over the sea to the west. We find out later that he admits that he is the culprit that the storm was caused for. And he identifies and he gives a great testimony to God that he's serving the God of heaven and earth. And then the sailors who are pagans 
essentially ask him why he's doing such a foolish thing to run away from God. And then in seemingly great faith, he tells them just to throw him over the, the side of the boat. And they do so, and the storm comes fairly soon. I don't know how soon it happened, because sometimes I wonder, when they threw him into the water and the storm stopped, why did they didn't grab him back and bring him back into the boat? I guess God will answer that question when we get to heaven. But supernaturally, God provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And then we see Jonah expressing a great amount of faith in the, in the fish. I'm surprised he didn't realize he hadn't died yet, but um, even in the fish, Jonah is uh, shown as a, a type of Christ figure in the same way that Jonah is brought back from the depths and back to life again, essentially. It's something that points to Christ and that's something that's picked up in the New Testament. And that section, that first half of the book, ends with a conclusion saying that salvation belongs to the Lord. And thus we come to our passage this morning. So my plan this morning is to step fairly quickly through the verses in the passage, and it's not a very long chapter, and then to give you my take on what we are to learn from this. So as Robert already indicated is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We see for all of Jonah's disobedience and his heading in the opposite direction of where God would have him go, God in mercy grants him a second chance to deliver the message to the people of Nineveh. He gives them, uh, and even as being one of God's commanded people, it required that he have this command of God repeated to him again. Whilst we may have got used to the amount of disobedience that we see in the Old Testament, it must give us some pause to see that God, when he asks for something the first time, obedience is what is required for such a great God. Sometimes I find myself asking my children, why do I have to keep repeating myself? If I say this once, I want you to do it. I'm sure those of you who are parents have probably heard yourself saying this a million times. And then you go and tell my, uh, your child, why do I have to keep repeating this warning to you over and over again? Why can't you listen to the warning the first time? And so on and so forth. So in verse 2, he says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. He tells him to go. He repeats again that it's a great city of Nineveh. It talks about the city being taking three days to traverse and of having 120,000 people in it. You have to remember that Nineveh was up and coming on the world stage at the time. It was at the time when the Syrian kingdom was kind of uh, losing its strength in the world and the Assyrian kingdom was rising and Nineveh would eventually be the capital city of that great new empire that was slowly taking over the area. And God tells him to proclaim a message to you. It was interesting that actually God changes his words that he uses in chapter 1 where he goes and says, preach against that city. Here he says, go and proclaim a message. For in chapter 1 he says, for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was known as a bloodthirsty city, and you'll see that if you look in the book of Nehum, which came about 80 to 100 years after the book of Jonah. And already the seeds of this violence had been sown because we know this, because when the king tells the people to repent, he tells them to turn from their evil ways and from their violence as well. You just have to look at some of the old um, uh, sculptures 
that were taken as a record of the kingdom of Assyria to see the brutality and the violence that this city exalted. And their wickedness had come before the Lord and, the God, and God would have a message that would condemn them and doom them. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through. And we'll see here that seemingly Jonah obeys and he does the task of spreading this message of doom. It's a very short message, in fact. An eight-word sermon, at least in the English. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. No message of salvation, simply a message of judgment. He doesn't even tell them why, actually. I don't know if this is just a summary of the sermon. He doesn't say, but it's, you can see later on that the king was able to discern that it was, he tells them to turn away from their violence and their evil ways. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. That first half of the verse sounds very familiar to something that I've heard elsewhere in the scripture where it says, Abraham believed God, and I don't think it's actually mentioned that kind of phrase by anyone else. The Ninevites believed God. In Abraham's case, it was counted to him as righteousness. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. They took God at his word. Small as the revelation was, they believed, they humbled themselves, all of them, from the greatest to the least. A people, mind you, who are described by God himself as not knowing their right hand from their left hand. A people that have no sense of spiritual awareness. And even with that little understanding of God and the very small revelation that they receive, they humble themselves. Now some of the commentators believe that the king's edict came first, which is coming in the next verse. That the king declared for all the people to do this, and then the people responded as a whole. But that the order is, is switched in these two verses, showing two things. The immediacy of their response. As soon as Jonah declared the message, there was an immediate response by the people. And secondly, that the response was a collective. Everyone in the city responded. In fact, I think if you'd look back, Jonah may have witnessed the highest percentage revival ever seen in history. Even Jesus didn't see results like this. At the time, Israel had been, uh, you would know that by now the kingdom of Israel had split and the ten northern kingdoms had gone, and pretty much every king on that northern kingdom was a rotten king. They had their moments maybe of slight bits of repentance, Ahab being one of them, he had a little bit of repentance and maybe a few others. And yet, the indictment to Israel would be after all that God had done for them, being the God of their salvation, having brought them out of the land of Egypt and constantly calling them with his prophets, how they would not respond to the Lord. And yet, here is a heathen nation without having the God of their salvation, without having God as being the God who's made covenant with them who will respond to such a small revelation of who God is. So this response of immediacy and the totality of the people that were included in this response 
is an indictment of Israel. Verse 6, when uh, Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the dust. Now, one of the things I wondered is that when Jonah says one of the reasons why he was afraid to go, he was afraid to go because he was afraid that they would relent and, they would, and God would show mercy to them. He didn't show any fear that they would martyr him, which may have seemed a more reasonable response. Here was the man who was the king of the city of Nineveh, maybe not the king of the entire Assyrian Empire, but who had all power in his hands to declare a death sentence on Jonah. Here is the man who is the most powerful city on the upcoming most powerful city in the world. A fortress in itself, actually, when I had a look at some of the pictures in the study Bible of the archaeological reconstructs that they've been able to make of, uh, of Nineveh, it was actually one of these cities with a wall around it, with a moat around it, with a river going through. The main city was a militarily strong nation, up and coming, which would eventually be known for its brutality and its strength in arms. A kingdom that was growing on the world stage. And yet, as the king and as a commanding man in this city, he rose from his throne and made a public display of his humility and his response to this message. Again, an indictment to Israel for wouldn't this have been the response that God would have hoped for from the kings of Israel as they led their people to respond in humility, calling all the peoples to follow him, calling from the greatest to the least to respond in humility, calling out to God and asking for mercy. And this is the decree that came out, verse 7. This is the proclamation he has issued in Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Here we see a few ritualistic ways of showing humility and um, to be under God's word. Taking off their royal robes, placing themselves in sackcloth, sitting down in the dust, denying themselves of food and fasting. Maybe you'd see their responses being a bit foolish. I mean, why are they including the animals in all of this? But yet, from their limited point of view, they respond in a way to show their humility, to show their repentance. Verse 8, the edict continues, the proclamation continues. But let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Perhaps they remember the severity that can be dealt out from the hand of the Lord. Maybe stories, legendary stories had come to them of the people of Israel and the angel of death that passed through Egypt, killing the firstborn of all the animals and all the people. Maybe they have heard the rumor of God's work against Sodom and Gomorrah as he rained down fire from heaven. For surely this was not a God to be trifled with. And yet together they come together displaying humility. They accept the message. And what are they called to do? Call urgently on the Lord. Call urgently on God. Give up your evil ways. Give up your violence. 
Verse 9. Who knows, God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Again, with relatively little by way of revelation of who God is, they surrender themselves to God's mercy. They place their hope in benevolence in his character. It reminds me of words in Psalm 147. God delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Or as the King James Version says, who put their hope in his mercy. They put themselves at the disposal of God's compassion. They realize he's a God who can execute his judgment should they not respond. Maybe he will turn away from his fierce anger. They also realize that their uh, evil ways and their violence have warranted such a fierce anger from the Lord. Let us do this that we shall not perish. Almost echo the words of Joel in Joel chapter 2 verse 14 where he calls the people, his own people, back to him, telling them to come and trust in his abounding goodness and faithfulness and his compassion. And what does he say? Who knows, maybe God will relent. Here we see the king, a man from a kingdom with spiritual depravity, not knowing their spiritual right hand from their left hand, casting himself on the mercy of God. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring, their judgment, uh, did not bring on them the judgment he had threatened. God responded based on how they turned and he averted the destruction from their city. I do wonder sometimes how that was communicated to the people in Nineveh. Was this part of the message that was to be proclaimed to Nineveh, as we saw in uh, chapter 3, verse 1? Did Jonah have to go back through and tell them, God no longer counts your sins against you. He will not destroy the city. Or did they wait 40 days and they realized? But I can imagine, after such a response of humility and placing themselves at the disposal of God's wrath and also hoping in his compassion and his mercy, what rejoicing they would have been in the city when they realized or when the message came that God would no longer bring destruction to their city. For all the stench of their wickedness, God sees their repentance. He sees their surrender and he, place, and he sees their surrender to be placed under the mercy of God and he finally relents. So that's a, like a brief overview of chapter 3. If you look at chapter 3 by itself, it seems like an ideal situation. Jonah's told to go, he goes and obeys, and the nation hears the word and repents. It's almost like that could be the book of Jonah by itself. We see God's compassion, we see Jonah's uh, obedience, maybe the messages about repentance or importance of evangelism. We see the response of humility and the surrender to the justice and mercy of God, the hope in God's mercy, the efficacy of God's word proclaimed. And maybe chapter 4 could have been something like this. Words of Jonah, hymn of praise, you know, Lord, I rejoice in my God. Not only has salvation come to Israel, but you relent and hold back your mercy. When people who are outside your covenant repent and turn away. Maybe it could have been, have some words of lament. Lord, oh, that your people Israel would see this heathen nation and themselves turn back to you. 
Praise to the God of my salvation, who sees those who repent and relents. And whilst all of these things, the obedience, the repentance, are all good messages that we can get from this book, I don't think it's the main thrust of the book as a whole. And I would like to suggest that it's maybe not even how the chapter should be understood. Because underneath, when we look maybe just a little bit further in chapter 4, the heart of Jonah is revealed, isn't it? And not wanting to steal too much from Charles's message next week, I will just take three verses from chapter 4. No more. The stuff in chapter 4 is so juicy, it was hard to, uh, <laughs> hard to resist, you know. In fact, when I looked at the, at the commentaries, chapter 3 has way less commentary than chapter 4. You know? <laughs> anyway, chapter 4, verse 1. But, Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, the, the repentance and the God relenting. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I, came, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Where is the justice? This bloody nation of Israel, of Assyria, this Nineveh, which would eventually be a capital of bloodshed, Lord, you know what your whole problem is, is that you're too soft. Jonah, in his obedience, he, he essentially hoped that the very character of God that saved him when he was in the ocean would be withheld from the Ninevites. You, you love to a fault, God. You're too soft. I knew that you would do this, Lord. This is why I didn't want to come in the first place. Seeing that, you can see the heart that is underneath what was preached. He obeyed to preach, but surely he was hoping for the destruction of Nineveh. The compassionate God is the complaint of Jonah, but it's the only hope of the Ninevites who cast themselves on the compassion and the mercy of God. He almost complains using words from the Psalms. You're a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Isn't that something that we rejoice in God? Even actually, it's something that he rejoiced in God when he was in the, in the tummy of the fish, isn't it? For all of his obedience, when we have a little glimpse into chapter 4, not trying to steal too much from next week's sermon, we get a glimpse into the heart that was underneath all of the obedience. It's almost as if he says, there are those of us who are worthy of grace, and there are those of us who aren't quite worthy of grace. It reminds me a little bit of the unjust servant in the parable. So if you took chapter 3 by itself, it might look that Jonah was being obedient and the people relented. But when you just look a little bit further, you see his heart, don't you? I remember once I asked my dad a few years ago. My dad uh, was a pastor for about 30 years. And I asked him, could you give me some advice? I want, want you to tell me some things that you've learned over years in ministry. And my father told me, 
he wrote it in an email because he doesn't live here, but he, he wrote it in an email. He said, there have been times when I would preach the word and um, after I'd finished preaching, it would be a fine sermon, but then God would come and tell me, you had anger in your heart against the people in the church. And it's the same thing here. He preached a fine message and for all externals, it looked like he was doing fine. Yet when you would have a glimpse at what was in his heart, shown briefly from chapter 4, you realize all he wished was that God would rain down fire from heaven and destroy these people. When we would look at that, we would start to see that those of us who are part of God's people, when we would so gladly receive grace from the Lord and sing about his goodness and his grace and the wonder that we have in salvation and yet wish that God would withhold that from others, we show how insidious the sin is in our own hearts, how deep it goes. In fact, I would say that when you compare Jonah to the other people in the parable, to the pagan sailors, to the Ninevites, and then to the obedient whale, worm, plant, and east wind, he's the worst character in the book. And then in insolence and in pride, we would say, Lord, we actually know better how you should dish out destruction and vengeance. It made me wonder... For there isn't really an analogue of us going up against the enemies of God and proclaiming, um, you know, uh, a message of doom and then them repenting. We don't really have the same parallel in our own lives, do we? But it made me wonder, under all of our own acts of public obedience, where is our own heart? Where is my own heart? After having received such a miraculous salvation, after having been given a second chance to declare God's word. He would exalt and say salvation belongs to the Lord and yet would wish that this salvation, this mercy, this compassion, this unabounding, this abounding love would be withheld from those who respond. How deep does grace penetrate into your life below the surface where people can't see People see the public ministry in the church and everything looks fine. You look at chapter 3 and everything looks fine. where, Where is the place of our heart in response to the amazing work of salvation that God has done in our lives? We too are guilty, aren't we? For how many times, if we would be honest, we're so swift and we're grateful to receive grace and mercy and love from the Lord. And yet, we are swift to withhold it from others. Something that I would call kind of a saved complacency. We love God for his salvation, and yet, in our dealings with one another, we are so quick to withhold grace. So quick to hope that God would not respond to their repentance. All of this would have been a great warning also to the people of Israel, as I mentioned earlier. They were out of the time from when the kingdom split to when uh, the Assyrians finally exiled everyone. There were 13 kings along out of the 19 kings. And now they were at a relative time of peace. They'd even gained back some of the territory that had previously been taken from them by the Syrian Empire. They'd gained a relative amount of materialistic prosperity 
And yet this immediate response from this heathen nation and the citywide totality of their response would be an indictment of Israel. For what was it that God cast out the Israelites for? It was for their idolatry, their disobedience to the covenant, their stubbornness, their having no fear of God, them not following his rules and statutes and not listening to the Proverbs, to the prophets. The God who himself had brought them out of Egypt, they would not listen to them. God had even shown them in their own kingdom that God would relent. You even see the wicked King Ahab, perhaps maybe the most wicked king on that Israelite branch of the split kingdom. That when he humbled himself, even him, God responded to his, his uh, contrition. And we, what do we see is that God is not a God just for us. He's a God for them too. With so little revelation, it condemns the Israelites who had so much by way of revelation. Not only did they have the commandments and the law, he was even the God that had made covenant with them. God who had been the God of their salvation who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And to me, it almost brings like a parallel to something that we saw in the book of Hebrews. When we look at ourselves, when we look at the people in the Old Covenant, how much less they have, how much more should we respond in grace? And in the same way, the Israelites, to this heathen nation who had so much less by way of revelation of who God is, so much less in terms of God's intervention into their history, yet they responded. So I think that there is an exhortation for us this morning too to have an immediate response of obedience to the lord of repentance where god shines his light even this morning to say this is an area of your life i wish that you my love would penetrate for god's patience is meant to lead us to repentance see that in the book of romans so maybe we would look at jonah and we would see that he's a character who's literally all over the map a disobedient prophet who's foolish, who, even though he, he sees God as the God of heaven and the God of earth, he runs and tries to run away from him in the opposite direction, even with full knowledge of who God is, fully aware of what he's being told to do. He tries to run away from God. Yet he sometimes has these moments of great faith and he tells the pagan sailors to throw him overboard. He experiences a massive salvific miracle. He's even someone who points to Christ in being brought back from the dead to life. He talks about his life being brought back from the pit, having his soul revived, his fainting soul, declaring that salvation is of the Lord. And foolish are those people who look to worthless idols. He obeys and goes and preaches. He witnesses probably the highest percentage revival in the history of the world maybe. And yet he's angry with God for, that God forgives. He's angry with God's character. And he kind of uh, shows insolence. I knew that you would do this, Lord. He's willing to receive grace from God and not dish it out to others. This was exactly why I want to go. And by the way, Lord, I, I wish I would die now, you know, like a stroppy little child. And then God says, you know, do you do right to be angry? Yes, I do right to, do angry, uh, to be angry with you, you know, for, for, not, you know, for relenting. In fact, what does he do in chapter 4? It tells us that he goes and he sits in a hut, I guess expecting that God will change his mind. You know, Jonah, by the way, you, you were right. Yeah, I was a bit too lenient, wasn't I? Okay, and then poof, 
you know, the fire comes down from heaven. We see the childishness. And finally, when we come to the end of chapter 4, we see we don't know how Jonah uh, responds to God's final question. Should I not show pity to the people of Nineveh? We don't know. By contrast, we see the sailors who kind of like end up as collateral damage. They show some regard for Jonah. They don't even wish to throw Jonah overboard. They don't want this man's, this innocent man's blood to be counted against them. And in, respond, and in seeing God's uh, response of throwing over Jonah overboard, they fear the Lord. They sacrifice to him. They make him vows. The Ninevites, the brutal sinners that you can see in the book of Nahum, maybe not at that point yet, but building up to that, their wickedness has come before the Lord. They hear one short message of judgment with no promise of salvation. Eight-word sermon, and they believe. They have an immediate response. They demonstrate their humility outwardly. The king takes leadership and tells them to, tells all of his people to urgently call on the Lord. And they cast themselves at the mercy of God. And when you start to look at this, and then you look at the whale that was appointed by God that obeys, and then the worm that obeys, and the plant that obeys, and the east wind that obeys, like I said earlier, it's not only that Jonah is no better than everyone else, he's worse than these people, isn't he? It exemplifies to me the patience of our God with us. For we see in Jonah, if we would be honest... We see more of ourselves, don't we, than we see in the others. And yet, it would be, I would hope that we would see how dire our situation is, that we will cast ourselves on the mercy of God. For if we can see in all of the weaknesses of Jonah, and even in the high parts, we see this roller coaster ride of a Christian life, something that points and looks like our life. Hopefully also, by type and contrast, we would see our saviour in Jonah's life. Not as one who is running away from the law, but the one who came. Not as one who is disobedient to the will of the law, but one who is obedient, one who brings a message of grace, and one under whom all of his obedience was a heart that wished to forgive and extend grace. In chapter 3, we see the obedience, but what do we see underneath the heart? But in our saviour, what do we see? An obedience. We don't see our Savior sitting outside the city waiting for the judgment of God to fall on the city, but we see our Savior taken outside the city and asking and having the wrath of God fall on him instead of the wicked city. Having seen the goodness of our God in Christ, let us wholeheartedly re- receive his grace, but also let it penetrate our lives that we would extend it to others. Let us have an immediacy in our response and a total response corporately. Let us all follow after the Lord. Let us examine our hearts for what lies beneath our public obedience. And I would ask, has grace penetrated? So if there was a chapter 4 written of our lives after the preaching or the playing the organ or leading worship or leading ministries, what sits underneath that? What lies beneath the surface? So in conclusion, the book of Jonah, in some sense, it doesn't conclude. 
We do not see Jonah's final response. We are left wondering how he would answer that question. Should I not show mercy to Nineveh? We see a warning to the people of Israel. From Old Testament history, Israel finally didn't respond to God's call for repentance. And they were judged and they were exiled from the land. And this Gentile response of obedience, full across the whole people, and they didn't. Indeed, they ended up being exiled by the king of Assyria who came from Nineveh eventually. Kind of ironic. One wonders as well, how deep was the repentance of the people of Nineveh? How deep was it? Within 50 to 100 years, there would come a king from that very city to lay siege on Israel who would defy the Lord and in response to his defiance, God would come and wipe out 185,000 people. Greater than the, 50% greater than the population of the city of Nineveh. How deep was their repentance? It's almost like in Egypt where they received so much grace through Joseph and then a king came up who had no recollection or no knowledge of the past history of God's grace to the people of Israel, people of Egypt through the, the kingdom of Israel. Yet Jonah remains a mystery. How did he finally respond? So like I said, the analog isn't easy for us today. We aren't proclaiming a message of doom to our enemies. But yet the principle remains, doesn't it? Will we joyfully receive grace from our God while simultaneously withholding it from others? So how deep does God's grace penetrate our lives? For a fitting response would be that of immediacy, immediate response to the call to respond to God's message. A total response and one that casts oneself at the mercy of God. For some of us, I think, say in our hearts that we are all sinners saved by grace, but some of us are more deserving than others. Let us pray together. Lord, as we come before you this morning and we have a look at this passage in Jonah chapter 3, Lord, we are made aware of our weakness, Lord. We pray that you would now shine us your spotlight, Lord, of holiness on the hidden areas of our life, those areas that are there behind the public shows of obedience, Lord, that reveal where our heart truly is. Fill us with such a knowledge and acceptance and appreciation and glory in your grace, Lord, that we will see the hypocrisy, Lord, of receiving your grace joyfully and withholding it from others. Even as we leave this place, Lord, let us respond immediately, Lord, to your message. Let us respond totally to your message. And even, Lord, in the aspects of our normal life that we will experience, Lord, just as we leave this building, as we go about our normal life, show us how grace should penetrate every aspect of our being, Lord. For the praise of your glorious grace, Lord, and the exaltation of your Son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.